Thank you, Aaron, for reading. So let's ask for God's help as we open his words. Father, we need your assistance today. We are hard of hearts and blind by nature, and so we ask that you would open our eyes, that we might understand your words and be those who hear it and who obey it. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. And uh, do be turning back to that passage on page 1001 in your Bibles. One of the most uh, sobering books that has ever been written in the Christian church is Fox's Book of Martyrs, penned by John Fox in 1563 under the title of The Acts and Monuments of These Latter and Perilous Days. It is a 2,500-page catalogue of Christian martyrs who have lost their life for the gospel. It starts with Stephen, the first martyr, and then moves through the history of the church and into the time of bloody Queen Mary. Written against the backdrop of the cruelty of the 16th century, the book tells the story of the suffering of those who have dared to go with the gospel into a dangerous world. But had Fox been able to look forward beyond 1563, the book could well have continued. Because martyrdom for Jesus Christ still continues today. Somewhere around the world today, a Christian will die for her faith. There were over 800 attacks on churches in France in 2021. Indeed, more Christians have died for Jesus Christ in the 20th century than in every other century put together. One in eight Christians live in a place where it's illegal to proclaim the gospel. On average, every day, 13 Christians are martyred for their faith, 12 are attacked, around five are abducted, and many more imprisoned for allegiance to Jesus Christ. Fox's Book of Martyrs, then, is a clarion call to stand for Christ and a reminder of the true cost of doing so. In his introduction to the book, he quotes Jeremiah 30 and verse 23, what storms and tempests the church hath overpassed is wondrous to behold. But the thesis is simple. In every generation, the kingdom of Jesus will face rejection and that those who dare to preach the gospel will encounter serious opposition. But all of this might come as something of a shock. Because if you were here last week, we were in chapter 5. We met two desperate women in their desperate plight, a bleeding woman and a dying girl. And we saw the great good news of Jesus Christ, the love of Jesus, the mercy of God as he intervenes in that plight to heal her of her suffering and bring back this girl from the dead. So surely from a marketing standpoint, we've got the winning formula. Surely now we can corner the market and profits will soar because if we've got the answer to death and suffering beyond the grave, surely the whole of Pennsylvania is going to pour in and with it the east coast of America, the city of Philadelphia and the whole of the world. Surely if we go out to preach this gospel, 
the world will want in on it. So chapter 5 is a shock next to chapter 6. Because if in chapter 5 we meet faith and salvation, suddenly and without warning, here in chapter 6, we now meet rejection and judgments. Chapter 6 is a sister text to chapter 5. Faith and salvation now becomes rejection and judgment. And the way that Mark is going to show us this is through some very smart editing. And I'd love you to look at the text and see this because it's very, very sophisticated. If you look at chapter 6, he structures it to make the point. If you look at verse 7 to 13, the 12 are sent out into mission. And then down in verse 30 to 32, the 12 come back to report on their mission. But what Mark does is to begin the mission of the 12 with the reception Jesus receives in verses 1 to 6, and in the middle, the fates of John in verse 14 to 29. This is a double sandwich, and the frame around which the 12 go out is going to show us the realistic expectations for mission and ministry. Look at what happened to Jesus and the reception he received. Then look at what happens to John and the fate he faced. That is the frame against which we are to understand apostolic mission as the 12 go out for the kingdom of Jesus. So it's three points that we've got this morning. I can see that two of them are already on the board for us, but here's the first. It is the reception Jesus received. Because in verse 1, the first round of Jesus' missionary journey is now completed. Thousands have been pouring into the stadium. They've heard the message loud and clear. But the response is one of astonishments. There's no getting around Jesus' authority. This is God's king on earth, his gravitas, wisdom and love, the purity, the clarity of his message. His sermons have cut through the ice. Hearts have been penetrated. And yet, Verse 2, the response is one of strenuous rejection. Where did this man get these things? The Greek is really quite rude. Where did this bloke, where did this guy get these things? And what's this wisdom that's been given to him? And maybe we've encountered this kind of opposition in our own evangelism. It's always unpleasant when a spouse or a child or a colleague rejects the gospel. But here's the perfect preacher, the perfect man of love, being rejected. And it's patronizing, as it always is in evangelism. It's, it's dismissive. Where, where did this guy learn to preach like this? I mean, he's the guy from four doors down where you live, isn't he? Um, didn't he go to elementary school with your sons? And didn't he play baseball in the same team as your sons? I mean, isn't this the guy who works at the joinery store, the carpenter's shop? I mean, isn't this Mary's little boy? Um, you know, aren't his brothers in the same football team as your sons? And aren't his sisters here as well? Yes. Because familiarity breeds Contempt and the villagers of Nazareth who've seen him grow 
in the perfection of his life, and they've seen the perfection and power of his miracles, rejects. It is Monty Python's life of Brian all over again. He's not the Messiah. He's just a very naughty boy. And they took offense at him. And that word offense in the original Greek is the word skandalizo, from which we get our word scandal. And it means to fall. The word skandalizo is used in the original Greek of anything that causes somebody to fall to their own destruction. So you're out in the Pocono Mountains and you're climbing up and then suddenly, without warning, there's a a rock or a boulder in front of you and you fall without noticing it, flat on your face, scandalizo. Or maybe in the ancient world you're walking around, again up in the hills, and some bandits have dug a hole and then covered it up with leaves and foliage to trap you, to murder you and rob you, and you accidentally fall into the hole to your destruction, scandalizo. Actually, this word was used of the bait stick. You'd put some meat on it. You'd leave the bait out on the stick. At night, the animal would go in, the rabbit. And then as it goes in, that stick would slam shut, and the jaws of the trap would kill the animal. Scandalizo. So it looks like they're rejecting Jesus, but there's far more going on in the story. Because you see, his teaching, his doctrine, his gospel is opening up a fault line and forcing them into a decision, a choice. Either they are going to go the way of the kingdom in obedience and faith, chapter 5, or they're going to go the way of rejection. But depending on the decision... They will stand or fall, but if they fall, scandalizo, it will be a judgment as they fall to their own destruction, as if the prison door will slam shut in their face. Because, verse 5, he could do no miracles there. It's not that he's weak and impotent, like some magician I can only perform to children who are excited. Rather, the purpose of the miracle is to bring revelation for salvation. The whole point of the miracle is to lead them to faith and rescue. But if the response is one of rejection, there's no point doing a miracle because the miracle will do more harm than good. It's not drawing them to faith, but hardening them under judgments. If the helicopter arrives because you're drowning in the Atlantic Ocean and the winch comes down to rescue you, but as the winch comes down to rescue you, you you push the winch away and you say no to the helicopter and say, get out of my life, get out of my ocean. Of course, the helicopter has no option but to pull the winch up and move away and to leave you to drown in death and judgments. The Surgeon General has a warning on most uh, cigarettes. I checked this out this week, and it goes something like this on the gin bottle or the cigarette packet. Warning, smoking or alcohol abuse can seriously damage your health. 
And you need to make up your mind if that's wicked scaremongering or a loving warning. Because it is loving, isn't it? To the pregnant woman or whatever it might be. But there's a real sense this morning in which that kind of warning should be on the board behind us. Warning. Listening to this sermon today can seriously damage your health because a fault line right now is opening up between those who will obey and accept the rescue, those who are saying in a very polite or religious way, no, a hardening of the hearts. Why is this? And the clue comes in what it is that the apostles are about to preach in verse 13, in what Jesus, in chapter 1, verse 15, has been preaching, and in what John, before him, declares. And it is that word, verse 13, that men should repent. Nicholas Copernicus was a Polish astronomer, known as the father of modern astronomy. And he was the first ever astronomer to propose what was called the Hellenocentric theory of the universe, which is this. Not that the sun revolves around the earth, but it's the other way around. The earth revolves around the sun. He was denounced as a heretic and buried in an unmarked grave. But he was right, and everybody else was wrong. And there needs to be something of a Copernican revolution for us all. Because God does not revolve around us. He doesn't revolve around our church. We revolve around him. He's the fixed points. And repentance is a call to a change of mind in which we say, the whole of my thinking, my ambitions and dreams, my will and my desires, my life and my words, thoughts and deeds will need to revolve around the axis of his lordship and rule. But this is a dangerous message in a rebellious world. So if the first point then is the reception Jesus received, verses 1 to 6, now we switch to Jesus' first cousin, John, and the fate John faced as he preached repentance. It's our second point. Because by verse 14, news about Jesus has reached the palace. And it has struck terror into this king, this other king, Herod. He's haunted in conscience by the murder of John the Baptist, which he himself orchestrated. And just as Macbeth was haunted by the murder he had been involved in, racked in conscience, now King Herod is racked as he thinks back to what he has done. It's paranoia, verse 14. John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in Jesus. He thinks Jesus is a reincarnation of John. And like in any good BBC drama, there's a flashback. Rather like previously on the West Wing, verse 17 to 32, as we go back now to what happened in the past. Because the king, 
was a huge fan of John the Baptist, a huge supporter of his ministry, verse 20. He was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous man, that he was holy, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was perplexed because he used to enjoy listening to him. The king had appointed John to be chaplain to the king in the chapel royal. And like in all good preaching, Herod was left with lots to chew on and to think about. But there was a problem. Because the role of the preacher is to bring the truth of God to bear in the hearts and minds of sinners. So as John announced the kingdom, he applied it to the listeners, and he confronted the sin of the king. He says, it is not lawful or biblical. It isn't right that you are married to your brother's wife with whom you are in an adulterous affair. You've taken Herodias from your brother. You are in a sinful, you are in a fornicating, adulterous relationship. You are living in sin and you must repent. I mean, imagine the Archbishop of Canterbury speaking like that to a Prince Charles. But John Calvin says that a sermon without application is not the word of God. So the king's heard the word of God, it's cut to the heart, it's penetrated, and now it demands a costly obedience. But there's another problem. And her name is Queen Herodias, verse 19, who has a grudge against him. And to cut a long story short, verse 19, wanted him put to death but couldn't do so. It's said that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And this woman is being scorned because the word of God is saying that she's an adulteress to the king. And you can imagine something of the conversation in the staterooms at the palace as she tries tries to manipulate the removal of this chaplain from the palace. Darling, Herod, my darling, this, this, this chaplain, John, I mean, he's upsetting so many people with his preaching. I've had so many complaints from the ladies in waiting. He's so black and white and unloving. I mean, why does he go on and on about sin and judgment and heaven and hell? He's such a fundamentalist, so pastorally insensitive. He's like a, like a bull in the china shop, reformed, puritanical, harsh. The tears start. He makes me feel, feel so uncomfortable. He's so depressing and off-putting, such a downer at the end of a hard week. I mean, do you really want the Reverend John the Baptist preaching in church here? What if the media got hold of his his extremist messages? Can't you find someone more tolerant, progressive, inclusive, loving? I can't bear him. What's the queen's fear? Is it perhaps that the king is coming under his spell and he might get converted to Christianity? 
Or is it that her guilt might be exposed and she might lose her husband as he repents? Either way, she knows her crown is being threatened by a higher crown because John announces the kingdom of God. So what does she want? Well, a more contemporary sermon, a feel-good Christianity that comforts and doesn't challenge, that stimulates but doesn't offend, which is what we all want if we're honest. Because the heresy of our day is called moral therapeutic deism. Moral, because I want the sermon to make me feel good morally. Therapeutic, because I want the sermon to make me feel good emotionally. And deism, because that's the idea that while God made the world, he's not in charge. He doesn't wear the trousers or the crown. And he will just be there and leave you alone upstairs so that we can be king of our own destinies here downstairs on earth. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Second Timothy, that the time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine, but will gather a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And she stands for many, this queen. She wants the word of God preached on her terms, a safe gospel, a comforting sermon, a domesticated God. And then in verse 21, the clouds begin to gather as a strategic day comes. It's Herod's birthday. He gives a banquet for his lords and uh, military commanders, the leading men of Galilee. I suppose it's a big national celebration in D.C. or the Trooping of the Color or, or something like that as the generals in full-dress uniform with their medals attend, the government ministers, foreign dignitaries, overseas ambassadors, a great state banquet. The king is toasted. The chamber orchestra pipes up. Uh, The ballroom dancing begins, probably, I don't know, Strauss's waltz or something like that. And then the king dances with his daughter-in-law, his stepdaughter, verse 22. And in a moment of stupidity, I assume, He's had one too many to drink. He whispers in this stepdaughter's ear. He says, ask of me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And she looks at him and says, promise? Verse 23, he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And it's what happens next that seals the fate of this this true prophet of God. Immediately, she rushes off to her mother, the queen. What should I ask for, mummy? An Arabian horse, a 25-carat diamond ring, a necklace of priceless pearls from the Caspian Sea. What shall I ask for, mummy? Verse 24, here's the chance, the moment. There's this cold, calculating ice maiden, a half-smile on her face, whispers, the head of John the Baptist. So manipulative and ruthless and grotesque. Verse 25, the drama speeds up immediately. She came to the king in a hurry. The urgency of it. I want you, out of breath, verse 25, to give me at once 
the head of John the Baptist on a plate. So here it is for the king. The moment of decision, the moment of crisis, the king is trapped. Up until now, he's been doing the splits. Mr. Facing both ways, words and world, God and wife, scripture and sin. But here's the fault line. Here's the moment of truth. Which way will he go? And which way will you go? Because either way now is costly. Obey your conscience and the word of God's, and you will face the rage of your wife. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. He's probably going to lose the marriage. What will the headlines be in the Wall Street Journal? The national scandal as he confronts his sin. But go with his wife and this this brutal stepdaughter, and he knows he's murdering the prophets that God has sent. I'll never forget being on a boat on a lake in Wales with my sister, my mother, and my father. My father is not an experienced oarsman. He was in the British Army, but not the Navy. And we were in this boat as he put his foot on the key, and then the other one went in the boat. And little did he know that there was a current. So we were sitting in the boat, but little did he know that there was movement. And that the boat was shifting. And we watched as he increasingly did the splits and had to make the decision. Do I stay on the key or do I stay in the boat as my family drifts off without the oars that hadn't been put in the boat? And as he was calculating it, it was too late. The fault line, the, the gap was opening up. And down he went into the icy water only to emerge about uh, five minutes later covered in plankton. And um, uh, my mother was furious. Uh, He sat in the back of the car. It it smelt. It was just the most horrendous etched in my mind forever. But there's the picture. You can do the splits only so long. The decision he reaches is immediate, and it's horrific. Verse 26, although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of the dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. 27, immediately he sent an executioner and commanded to bring back his head. It is as desperate as it is pathetic. The executioner dispatched to the dungeon, the, the block erected on Tower Green, the last rites administered. The footman sent down, and in he walks with the platter, and all eyes are on the platter because on the head, the head. What a wicked birthday banquet. What a, what a gruesome scene from a, from a horror movie as that plate is presented to the king, dripping with bloods. Verse 28, the trophy given to the queen. But all of this is a real warning to us. Don't do a Herod. Listen and obey. Because Herod stands as the ultimate picture of the double-minded man. He wants to keep his options open. He wants to do the splits. He wants the word and the world. He wants to listen to John and listen to his wife. 
He stands really as an enacted parable of the parable of the sower. He's hearing but not understanding, and he's, he's seeing the kingdom but not really perceiving it. This murder probably took place around A.D. 29, and in that sense, he probably is the first Christian martyr. But as first cousin to Jesus, what happens to John the prophet is the picture of what will actually happen to Jesus the ultimate prophet. Look at verse 29. It's ominous. It rings bells as John's disciples took his body and placed it in a tomb. Does that remind you of another death? But the point is the third point. For as the apostles now head out into ministry, this is the frame. This is the shape, verse 7 to 13. Look at the reception Jesus received. Look at the fate John met. And there's the template of what the apostles will face and what we will face if we're faithful in this generation to the apostolic words of God. Why? Because what the apostles are going to preach is the Copernican revolution, which is that men, that we, must repent. An experiment was done some years ago involving monkeys, a jar, and chocolates. And in the jar were chocolates. An experiment uh, went like this. The scientists watched as the monkeys put their fists in to get the chocolates. But then as they tried to pull out, they couldn't get their hands out because it was clenched. And the question was, would they hold on and remain trapped or let go and be released? And time and time again, the answer was they couldn't let go and so remain trapped. It's like that for us in our world. Herod is in chains to his ego, appetites, lust, his relationships, his reputation, his wife. He cuts a pathetic figure, a puppet on a string. But it's like that for us as we preach the gospel in a hostile world. So I want to finish this morning with a series of lessons, and we'll work through them. I think I've got four. The first is, this is a lesson about the human heart. On my own, I can't repent and let go, just like those monkeys in the experiments. Only the Spirit can make me do that as I call out to God. And I wonder if there's anyone here this morning that's holding on to sin and saying no to the crown of Jesus. It's a real warning, isn't it? And we need to cry out and say to God, enable me, have mercy on me, and save me. A lesson about the heart, because Herod goes more than most in his discipleship. He fears John. He knows that this is a just and holy man. He loves to listen to John. He's in church making notes, and he's in the growth group. But his heart has not been captivated by the Word of God at all. And I think there are many in churches across America with what I would call the Herod's complex. I love to listen to the sermon. Thank you, pastor, for your word today. And just to warn you when you say that to me, I'm tempted to respond in love. What struck you? And what are you going to do about it this coming week? Because that's the question, isn't it? 
a lesson about the heart. Second, there's a lesson about ministry. Because John stands as the prototype example of authentic biblical ministry. He teaches the words of God and applies it without fear or favor. He could have made all kinds of calculations. Well, I'm the royal chaplain. I need to be careful. I don't want to upset the king, especially with the queen around. So I'm going to play it safe. I'll preach about Jesus, but I won't challenge the king. I won't actually call out the sin in his life. I'll wait. I need to be winsome. Now, he teaches the words of God without fear or favor. And in that sense, he develops powerful enemies. One of the most effective prime ministers that Britain has ever seen was Margaret Thatcher. She turned the country around in the darkest moments of economic despair and developed many enemies in so doing. And she drew comforts. And if you've seen The Crown, this part is accurate. She drew comfort from a poem that had been written by a Scottish poet uh, called Charles Mackay, entitled, No Enemies. Listen to this. You have no enemies, you say. Alas, my friend, the boast is poor. He who has mingled in the fray of duty that the brave endure must have foes. If you have none, small is the work that you have done. You've hit no traitor on the hip. You've dashed no cup from perjured lip. You've never turned the wrong to right. You've been a coward in the fight. Authentic gospel ministry involves dashing the cup from perjured lip. It involves conflict as you hit the traitor on the hip. And John the Baptist tells you that if we dare to preach the gospel in this way, in this culture, our future and fate may well be the heads on the platter. I lived in Oxford for nine years, and I used to take students to a cross in the middle of the road, two minutes from my office. And I would say, here, right here, on the 10th of October, 1555, bishops Latimer and Ridley stood outside Balliol College as they were burnt to death at the stake for their Protestant gospel reforming the errors of the day. And J.C. Ryle, the book we're reading, the author of that, puts it like this, prophets and faithful preachers in every age have been treated in like manner. They have been hated by some and not believed. Let it never surprise us when we hear of faithful ministers of the gospel being spoken against, hated, and reviled. Let us rather remember that they are ordained to bear witness against sin, the world, and the devil, and that if they are faithful, they cannot help but cause offense. A lesson on judgment. Jesus could do no more miracles there. The head of John the Baptist on a platter. Because who wins in that story? At first reading, you say, Herod and Herodias win. The prophet is dead. But there's more going on, isn't there? Because what they've terminated is not John 
He's in glory. They've terminated the proclamation of the message of salvation in the palace. And as that head arrives on that plate, those eyes, now closed, in a sense, declare the end of the ministry of mercy and of the gospel of grace to this palace. This is the end, not of John or of the kingdom, but of their salvation. For as I finish, Jesus is God's king, a savior of mercy and love. The story of Herod, tragic as it is, could have gone so differently as he turned and received the gospel in repentance and faith. But this story leaves us with the decision. Will we submit to the crown of Jesus, his outstretched arms of grace and love and mercy at the cross, the splits, the fault line, which way, the world's or the word? Let's pray. So, Father, our prayer this morning is that we would be those who hear your words, who love your Son, and who by your Spirit enthrone him in our hearts and lives. And we ask it for his namesake. Amen.